Well, good evening. If you'd keep 2 Corinthians 5.11 open, that would be great. So when was the last time you witnessed reconciliation? As you heard from the job I do, I witness it on an hourly basis. The need to be reconciled. The need for broken or fractured relationships to be restored. Loving communication re-established. As we heard this morning, we were made for love, for relationship. But we live in a society where relationships across all levels are broken and fractured. That's why in an independent school like Reed's, you have someone doing the same job as me in a comprehensive school in East London. Across society, relationships are broken and fractured. There is hurt and pain. So the idea of being reconciled is appealing, isn't it? To have relationships restored. Reconciliation is one of those great Bible words, isn't it? It sits nicely alongside salvation, justification, sanctification, glorification, the great shuns of the Bible. It's a word we know the definition of. Maybe we know the theory, but really, do we really grasp what it is in reality? And do we have a full understanding of what it means in terms of the gospel? As Christians, what does reconciliation mean to us? Our passage tonight sees Paul writing about the gospel of reconciliation to the Corinthian church and their need to be reconciled to God. In verse 20, Paul writes them, We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. In other words, we urge you, we beg you, Get right your relationship with God. So why does the church at Corinth need to be reminded of this? Across Paul's letters, both 1 and 2 Corinthians, we see Christians in Corinth being sexually immoral. They're arguing amongst each other. There is disharmony in the church. There are leadership struggles. There's contradictory things being preached. The word and authority of God is being disputed. People are comparing themselves to others and looking down on one another. There is a lack of grace and forgiveness being shown to one another. The Corinthian has many issues around relationships. The relationships on display in the church do not promote a reconciled gospel or a reconciled people. A people God has reconciled to himself. And in tonight's passage, Paul is imploring them to be reconciled to God that they may fully understand the reconciling power of the gospel and the impact that is to have on their lives. And also the impact that gospel can have on others as well, that it can be preached more powerfully and effectively if it is demonstrated in the lives of the Christians themselves. They have moved away from the gospel of reconciliation and it's being evidenced in their relationships with each other and their attitude towards gospel preaching. They have been swayed by the ministry of the super apostles, peddlers of a false gospel that seemed more glamorous and individually triumphalistic than the supposed weak and suffering gospel that Paul preaches. These are people who are into grandeur and status, materially and physically impressive, orally gifted. The Christians in Corinth have been swayed by what is seen rather than what is unseen. And Paul throughout the letter is having to defend both his ministry and himself in the attacks he's receiving from the apostles. And the latest attack we see in verses 11 to 13 is that he's insane. Look at me with verses 11 to 13. 
Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Paul knows what it is to fear the Lord. He is a man of integrity. His life is motivated by a reverence for the God who he serves. He's not a hypocrite looking to gain personally from the gospel. His conscience about the gospel and his conduct before God is clear and the evidence of his life and ministry should also be clear to the church in Corinth too. But they're saying he's a madman, a fanatic, a bit of a nutter. In verse 13, they say he is out of his mind. Such is his passion and determination for the gospel that he's seen as out of his mind. You see, the super apostles were preaching a gospel that was mainstream acceptable, easy to listen to, a message that puts man at the center. So to preach what Paul preaches and to suffer how he suffers, you'd have to be considered a lunatic, a fanatic. We see similar patterns today, don't we? People have little tolerance for authentic gospel ministry. If they want any gospel at all, they want a watered-down version. And there's plenty of people willing to preach it. Churches that give motivational speeches rather than that open up the word of God. Churches that are more interested in social change than spiritual change. Preachers who don't preach sin and wrath of God and need for repentance, rather that God accepts all things. Churches that don't challenge the anti-biblical movements of the day. And it's attractive to people. Of course it would be. You come in and you don't feel uncomfortable. You get a little morale boost. you topped up for another week. It puts a spring in your step and off you go. But it isn't gospel truth. It isn't. Paul was happy to be called a fanatic because of his commitment to the unwavering truth of the gospel. Paul is encouraging the Christians here, look, if I am out of my mind, it is for God. If I'm an insane fanatic, then it's for God. He isn't apologizing for his unwavering commitment to the gospel. He actually goes on to explain why he holds this position and why they should too. And if Paul holds that position and he's urging the church in Corinth to, then we also have to hold this position. We have to hold to the truth of the gospel. If we become a church that softens the gospel in the hope of getting more people through the door, then we'll face many of the same problems the church in Corinth faced. We, like Paul, have to be 100% committed to the gospel. We know the fear of the Lord. We hear it preached week on week here in this church. The word of God is open every week. And we stick to it. And we have to stick to it. Because in the days to come, accusations of insanity, of bigotry of being narrow-minded, outdated, and irrelevant, those attacks will come on us too, just like they came to Paul. But we must continue to preach the gospel. Why? Because the love of Christ compels us to. Look at verse 14 with me. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. 
The love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ. It is the love of Christ that forces, that pressures Paul into preaching the gospel that he preaches. It's the love of Christ. The love that manifested itself and went to the cross to die for all that will believe in him. It is that love that compels Paul. It is that love that convinces him that the gospel he preaches is true. The love that took the Son of God from the glories of heaven to be born in a stable. The love that took the Son of God from the worship of angels to be a carpenter's son in the despised town of Nazareth. The love that allowed him to be betrayed by his friend. The love that allowed him to be falsely accused in sham trials. The love that allowed him to be beaten, berated and battered by the very people he had created. The love that allowed him to be nailed to the cross in public shame. The love that meant he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The love that meant he took on all sins, past and present, for every person who believes in him. That love, that love is what compels Paul to preach the gospel. The gospel preached has suffering at its heart because at its heart is a saviour who endured the ultimate agony and suffering for our sake. And this is what Paul has been urging the Corinthian church all along, isn't it? That the gospel isn't about personal triumph or material well-being or a prosperous life and an easy ride. But it's about the love of Christ seen most powerfully when he was nailed to a cross for us to bear the punishment for our sin. That's the gospel that saved them. That's the gospel they need to follow. That's what they need to hear preached. And that's the gospel he's imploring them to go back to. And that's the gospel they are to live for. Paul is compelled by the love of Christ to teach it and to live it, even if it means enduring suffering, because Christ suffered to death for him. Are we compelled by this love? Does the love of Christ compel us in the same way it compels Paul? Are we prepared for the ridicule, for the sacrifice? Are we living for the one who died for us and rose again? I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm a constant bottler of opening up and sharing the gospel with adults. <laughs> Put me in a youth setting and I'm, I'm quite happy to talk about the things of Christ. Put me in a staff room and you just find me in the corner. Put me at a staff social like I was on this week and I'm so reluctant to speak up for Christ. But Paul was prepared for the ridicule. He was prepared. He was willing to sacrifice, to live for the one who died for him and rose again. Because if this is the gospel we claim to believe and preach, we no longer live for ourselves but for Christ. That's what it says in verse 15. It says, And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Because the love of Christ took him to the cross for us, we no longer live for ourselves, but for him. Paul is taking them back to the cross so they can see it's because of what Christ has done that they are changed. They now live for the glory of Christ, not for the glory of themselves. He makes this point further in verses 16 and 17. So from, now on regard no, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. 
Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. If anyone is in Christ, if you believe that Christ died for you, that Christ took the punishment for your sin, that your future is certain with Christ as your saviour, if you believe these things, you are in Christ. And you are a new creation. A new creation. The old way of thinking has gone. No longer is what people think of us our main motive in life. No longer is our financial well-being our main motive, our likes on Instagram. Our priorities, values, motives, plans, way of thinking are no longer in control of us. The old has gone. Being in Christ brings about a change of focus and mindset. Everything has been made new. Our motives should now be compelled by the love of Christ who died for us. We are no longer of this world. We see things differently. And that's what Paul is saying to the Corinthian Christians who keep reverting back to their old ways and their old way of thinking. Paul is urging the Christians in Corinth to acknowledge they have been made new. That relationships need to be reconciled. Lifestyles need to change. Those issues that I mentioned at the beginning need to be resolved. Those issues that they're having are rooted in their old way of thinking. The new creation is here. Live now for Christ. We're Christians here this evening. There might be patterns of sin in our life that we're holding on to. Be compelled by the love of Christ to abandon them. Christ died for you. You are in Christ. You are new. Return to the cross. See him hanging there. So that you can live a life for him. If you've lost your passion for the gospel, it's no longer your main motive. Return to the cross. Be compelled by Christ's love that he died for you. This is the gospel that Paul is urging the Corinthian church to get back to. And it's a gospel we have to cling to and go back to every single morning so that we might live for Christ. And all this has been done by God so that we can be reconciled for a relationship with him. Verses 18 to 21 have pretty much blown me away over the past few weeks looking at this. So let's read them together. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. All this is from God. God reconciles us to himself through Christ. Because of what Christ has done, your relationship to God can be restored. It is absolutely 100% nothing of us. It is all of God. So how does God do this? Verse 21. God made him 
who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made the Lord Jesus Christ who lived a perfect and holy and faultless life. On him he put our sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We could say it like this. On the cross, God treated Jesus as if he lived your life. He didn't, but God treated him as if he did. He treated Christ as if he lived my life. As if he committed every sin I have committed, both in the past and in the future. Every sinful thought, deed and action. And he pulled out, sorry, he poured out the full fury of his wrath against our sin as if Christ was the guilty one. And that's only the half of it. The verse goes on. On the cross, God treats his son as if he lived your life so that he could treat you as if you lived his son's life. That's how God sees you. He looks at the cross and sees you. He looks at you and sees his son. This is what it took for God to reconcile us to himself. Isn't that incredible? Is there a love to match that? Is there a more glorious truth than that? This is where Paul is urging the Corinthian church back to. God did this so he could reconcile us to himself so that our broken relationship with him could be restored. This is the gospel of reconciliation that Paul is making absolutely clear. It is not a case of us making ourselves right with God but God reconciling us to himself through Christ. The gospel does not have us at the center. This isn't the message or ministry he has been given. It is not our triumph like the super apostles were preaching. It is all from God through Christ. This is the ministry that Paul has preached at Corinth and now the church at Corinth needs to apply to themselves and to preach to others. Because this is the gospel, isn't it? That God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. This is life-changing gospel that brings us back into a relationship with God and it brings about a transformation of the heart. And this ministry was committed to Paul as an ambassador of Christ. Let's read verse 20 again. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God. Paul had this message as an ambassador of Christ and we have this same message committed to us. This is the same message, this gospel of reconciliation that we have. God is making his appeal through us to the people of Cheserton, to our loved ones, to our work colleagues. So when we're at the family barbecue and our brother or our sister or our parents are there, do we desire to see them reconciled to God? Are we motivated and compelled by love for the gospel of reconciliation? When we turn up to adventurers or fusion, JF or YPF or Highway or Rainbow Tops, whatever it might be, are we turn up with a longing to see the people there know Christ and have a relationship with God? 
When we meet the NCT mums for a coffee, the boys from football for a beer, when we have lunch in the staff room with a colleague, when we catch up with our best childhood mate, do we see them as people who are not saved and who need to be reconciled to God? We need to compel them in the love of Christ. We need to implore them. As Christians, we have a responsibility of ambassadors of Christ. A message of reconciliation has been committed to us. Be reconciled to God. Paul implored people so much, they called him crazy. The message of reconciliation tells people that God loves you. He loves you so much that Christ died for you. If you believe in him for the forgiveness of your sins, do we tell it? Do we implore it? Are we compelled by love, by love of Christ for those we tell? If we truly, truly see how beautiful reconciliation is to God, we must long to see others, others also reconciled to him. Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And, the day, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. As God's fellow workers, this continued idea of Paul as an ambassador for Christ, of being used by Christ in the work of sharing the gospel, Paul is urging the church, don't, don't take grace in vain. Don't hinder God's grace. Don't add to the gospel. Don't change the gospel. But believe it. Live by it. Preach it. Now is the day of salvation. There's an urgency here to what Paul is quoting from Isaiah. Now is the day of salvation. Now. Now. Be reconciled to God. Now. As Christians, be confident that when we preach this gospel, today is the day of salvation. God is still working. God still saves. Are we going out with a gospel, knowing that God still saves? Today is the day of salvation. Are we confident in God to do his work? And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, God loves you. He sent his son for anyone who would believe in him so that your relationship with him might be restored. That amazing love, that reconciliation is readily available to you today. Today is the day of, the day of salvation, so come to Christ today. The 27th of May, 2018. God has done it all, all of it. Come to him. Confess your sins to him. Be made new. Please don't delay. Today is the day of salvation. In a world that longs for relationships, that longs for reconciliation, we have a ministry of a God who reconciles the brokenness of mankind to himself through the death of his son on the cross. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen.